I have a prediction, and we're going to know in a few weeks whether I'm right or not. I don't think the gas is going to be turned back on in Germany, or in Europe, or Nord Stream 1. They're shutting it down for maintenance again. I don't think it's going to happen. So we're going to know in a show or two, probably two shows from now, whether it's coming back on. But after that car explosion, I would be very surprised to see that, you know, gas get turned back on. Like, if anything, what they're probably doing is making sure that when they turn off the gas, that they're not damaging anything, that the Russians aren't damaging anything on their side. And then once the coast is clear and it's like, yep, all our systems are still working and we cut off the gas successfully, then they'll be like, okay, uh, the tests are done and the gas is not coming back on. And they'll give some reason or excuse, but that's my take. I mean, maybe I'll be completely wrong on this. Hello and welcome to the Northern Miner Podcast. My name is Adrian Pocabelli. Welcome back. This is no laughing matter, though. I mean, when they announced this on Monday, August 22nd, so yesterday, I saw in the Wall Street Journal, I was Googling this, in the Wall Street Journal, they said gas prices went up 19%. Actually, it was CNBC here. The front, the front month gas price at the Dutch TTF hub, the one everybody is watching, a European benchmark for natural gas trading, jumped 19% on Monday to reach 291.5 euros, which is now $291, so basically at, at par again. I think actually the euro dropped below par. So that's pretty wild because I don't know if you saw that French electricity price chart that was going around Twitter maybe a week ago, week and a half ago, where where it just launched into outer space. I assume the German one isn't that different, and this thing jumped 19% at these already extreme levels in a day. So what does it say here? Gas flows via the Nord Stream 1 pipeline will be suspended for the three-day period from August 31st to September 2nd. Okay, so in two shows, we're going to see if this is back on. And this has a direct impact on mining. We're seeing it in the earnings results. We have some interesting stories. I mean, inflation costs are hurting the miners. So that is a huge issue. And maybe just as importantly, maybe even more so, this is physical reality, not just, you know, profit and loss statements, are these smelters. We mentioned it in the Alcoa earnings call. It's a fascinating earnings call. I highly recommend people listen to that. And they shut down from, if memory serves, they shut down their smelter in Spain because of high energy costs, one assumes natural gas. And then Trefigura last week announced a smelter closing. Let me just bring that story up. Six days ago, Bloomberg zinc prices surge as Trefigura's Nurstar Boodle smelter to halt, and this is in the Netherlands. So, in case you're wondering why we're discussing energy here, you need energy to extract metal or deal with it, process it, you name it. Just like you need energy for every other thing in our modern world. So, things are getting intense over here. Headline on Bloomberg, France unexpectedly joins Germany with shrinking economy and frankly, with no end in sight. Like, nobody is going to the table right now. If anything, everybody is getting more entrenched. And again, this car bomb that killed Putin's brain's daughter, so-called, one would think this is 
No gas. Like, I if I just had to guess, like the gas is definitely not coming back on, and it's just bad news for everybody. Okay, and I was asking people like, who could have done this? Like, who would do this? Who did this? It's like a really weird. Like, I mean, I would guess, you know, and I have zero information or insight on this but like my first guess was the cia (laughs) and apologies to the cia if you weren't involved i mean and and like but that would just be if i was to just hazard a guess and if not maybe it was internal forces in russia maybe someone who lost their son and wanted to get even so things are ratcheting up here And August is far from over. So no shortage of drama. We have some very dramatic news stories. I mean, it's a little scary out there. Also, in just like the mining industry proper, uh, Trevally halts trading as Burkina Faso managers face trial following fatal mine flooding. So another just bad news story all around. A couple of executives are being carted away. And we don't know, justified or not, for eight miners dying. So it's kind of dark out there right now, but we're going to try and keep things as light as we can. We actually have some good news here uh, via Alicia Hyatt, editor-in-chief of the Northern Miner, who joins us and tells us some very heartwarming stories from the Canadian Mining Hall of Fame. And she also updates us on the newspaper and what's going on. Just I asked her some big picture questions and also just what the Northern Miner is up to with coming events and whatnot. So a very fun episode, again, as I mentioned at the start of the interview, when I first started working at the Northern Miner, I was put in the cubicle beside Alicia. So I have known her for 10 years, and I believe it was in February or March, I think it was in March, she became editor-in-chief of the Northern Miner, and she has been doing a fabulous job. So it was a lot of fun to interview her and just to talk to her. So lots to look forward to. If you want to find us online, you can find us at northernminer.com. You can find us on Twitter at Northern Miner and on Instagram at The Northern Miner and on Facebook, LinkedIn, and YouTube, where we also host these podcasts. And wherever podcasts are available, including Spotify, Stitcher, Apple Podcasts, and SoundCloud. And with that, let's turn to the news. And turning to the website, we are back to copper. Copper deficit, a critical destabilizing threat to international security, says S&P Global. This is by Henry Lazenby. And this is a story we just hear more and more. Copper scarcity may emerge as a key destabilizing threat to international security in the 21st century. An analysis by S&P Global found this week, quote, projected annual shortfalls will place unprecedented strain on supply chains. The challenges this poses are reminiscent of the 20th century scramble for oil, but may be accentuated by an even higher geographic concentration for copper resources and the downstream industry to refine it into products. According to the report entitled The Future of Copper, Will the Looming Supply Gap Short-Circuit the Energy Transition? And continuing on, copper is seen as the metal of electrification, and is essential to all energy transition plans. Despite its critical status, the potential supply-demand gap is expected to be, quote, very large, end quote. 
as the energy transition intensifies. Substitution and recycling will not be enough to meet the demands of electric vehicles, power infrastructure, and renewable generation. Quote, unless massive new supply comes online in a timely way, the goal of net zero emissions by 2050 will be short-circuited and remain out of reach, end quote, warned S&P in its report. And we're not talking 2030, we're talking 2050. According to the firm, copper demand is projected to grow from 25 million tons today to about 50 million tons by 2035, a record high level that will be sustained and continue to grow to 53 million tons by 2050. The report notes that the power and automotive applications will have to be deployed at scale by 2035 in order to meet the 2050 net zero targets. Finally, the chronic gap between worldwide copper supply and demand projected to begin in the middle of this decade will have serious consequences across the global economy and will affect the timing of achieving net zero emissions by 2050. The shortfall is expected to reach as high as 9.9 million tons in 2035 in its Rocky Road scenario, which is based on a continuation of current trends in capacity utilization of mines and recycling of recovered copper. Quote, this would mean a 20% shortfall from the supply level required for the net zero emissions by 2050 target. The gap arises even under the assumptions of aggressive capacity utilization rates and all-time high recycling rates in the high ambition scenario. Even with these aggressive assumptions, refined copper demand will outpace supply in the forecast period up to 2035. Mining leader BHP sees the copper market, quote, take off by the mid-2020s, quote, if not earlier, end quote. It recently stated. So we have been banging the table here after Jeff Curry and everybody else has notified us that copper is something to watch and you know, this whole natural gas out of Europe situation could be like preamble or prelude or a preview of what we can expect. Like what's so interesting in a sense about Europe is there's not enough energy. So the price just keeps going higher and higher and higher until people won't pay because there's not enough energy, seemingly. So it looks. I mean, that's what the pricing is telling us because it just keeps going higher and one wonders how high it can go before people say, I don't want energy. Because right now, I think we're still in the mentality like, okay, we'll just pay for it. But if everybody says we'll just pay for it, then it's going higher. People need to get priced out in order for this price to stop rising. And one wonders, again, is this just a preview of what we can expect in, say, the copper market in the coming years? So who knows? But, I mean, pretty intense. Continuing on, now, kind of another side to this story, Haywood comes out with another report, also by Henry Lazenby, quote, winter, end quote, approaches for base metals equities. A metaphorical winter approaches for base metals equities, says Haywood Capital Markets in a new report published on Sunday. Analyst Pierre Veillancourt expects the constellation of base metals companies under coverage second quarter results to fall below expectations when they start reporting results from month end. Quote, overall, we look for most base metal producers to reflect weakening metals prices as negative provisional price adjustments will impact results, wrote the analyst in a note to clients. Haywood also expects ongoing inflation pressure to impact costs materially, which continued at an annualized 8.7% rate CPI for the June quarter, including WTI crude oil up 14% quarter on quarter and diesel up 32% quarter on quarter up 32% on diesel. 
Quote, as a result, we believe operating mine costs will continue to increase in the quarter. On the other hand, we note that operating conditions were more favorable for some companies, which will help mitigate the impact of inflation and metals prices. Average prices improved sequentially in the June quarter for zinc, closing at $1.78 per pound versus $1.49 per pound in the first quarter, and nickel gained to $13.16 per pound versus $12.15 per pound three months earlier. However, the copper price declined 21% over the prior three months to $3.71 per pound, and so it goes. So you can see the charts, and I only looked at about half of that article. You can read all about the different stocks in there on northernminer.com. Just look for the winter approaches for base metals equities headline. Continuing on, here's kind of another kind of, you might say, related story, obliquely at least, somewhat. Peruvian Institute of Economy reports, quote, concerning decrease in mining private investments. It's by Northern Miner staff. A recent report by the Peruvian Institute of Economy states that the country's mining sector has seen a, quote, concerning decrease in private investments. According to the Institute, while the mining sector was responsible for 19% of total private investments in 2012, it now accounts for only 10%. This new baseline is similar to that of 2016, even though copper prices have doubled since then. The report notes that civil unrest, particularly when it is spurred by difficult relationships between mining operators and the surrounding communities, is to blame for the dwindling initiatives led by private capital. Quote, Low mining investment is linked to the sustained loss of attractiveness the country has faced since 2018 and the increase in conflict seen in the last year. End quote. The dossier, which was made public by local media, reads, It continues, In Latin America, and particularly among top mining economies, Peru is the country with the most conflicts, and this indicator reduces companies' interest to invest in the sector. So more trouble out there. And then another story by Henry Lazenby, this Trevally mining story. Trevally confirms arrest of Percoa managers, receives creditor protection. Alien zinc miner Trevally Mining reported receiving an initial order from the Supreme Court of British Columbia under the company's Creditors Arrangement Act, CCAA, on Friday, granting creditor protection. Production at two of its three assets remained suspended amid a lower-price, higher-cost environment. Also on Friday, Burkina Faso news sources reported that two Trevally executives were arrested in the country due to the tragic flooding at the Percoa zinc mine that trapped and killed eight miners underground. Burkinabi authorities have also filed charges relating to this matter against the company's in-country subsidiary and the mine operator. Mining and milling at Trevally's 90%-owned Percoa mine have been suspended since the accident in April. It is unclear what charges the Trevally employees stand trial for. The northern miner has reached out to Trevally to comment, but has not received a response by press time. So pretty intense developments in Burkina Faso. And we have a story by Blair McBride... Neo Performance Materials Inc. deal to acquire Hudson Resource Rare Earths Project in Greenland. So Neo Performance Materials will acquire an exploration license from Hudson Resources for its Sarfar Talk Carbonatite Complex in southwest Greenland under a binding agreement announced Monday. The license will cover Sarfar Talk, which hosts Hudson's ST1 Rare Earths Project and the Nukituk Neobium Tantalum Project a NEO, a Toronto-based metals manufacturer, said in a news release. Sometimes mining news can get a little tricky. No fault of Blair's, by the way. That is just, he didn't make up the names of all these metals and places. Both of Hudson's projects have a, quote, high ratio of neodymium, 
and praseodymium at 25 to 40% total rare earth oxides that comprise a NI43101 compliant resource of 27 million kilograms of neodymium oxide and 8 million kilograms of praseodymium oxide, according to its preliminary economic assessment published in 2011. And scrolling down a bit, Neo President and CEO Konstantin Karyanopoulos said the company believes Safartuk is a strategic asset that complements its European rare earth magnet growth strategy. Quote, this resource would supplement our current supply of rare earth concentrate from energy fuels in the United States. We are very confident and supportive of the Greenlandic government's vision for sustained focus mining as the driver of their economic development, job creation, and growth. There have been some issues in Greenland as of late. So, yes, he is sending out his goodwill to the Greenland government. And it's interesting, companies like Energy Fuels, how important they're becoming after being kind of sidelined for the last decade in the mining markets is from a stock perspective. They are having their day in the sun. The supply agreement with Energy Fuels, where the Colorado-based producer of uranium, vanadium, and rare earths provides Neo with mixed rare earth carbonate produced at its White Mesa mill in Utah, which was initially mined as monazite sand ore in Georgia by Chimors. You almost need a degree to read the Northern Miner sometimes, but we will help walk you through it. And we don't pull punches here. As you can see, you are getting the raw information so those are your news stories. Now let's take a look at metal prices. And turning to metal prices, as we always do, we start with the 10-year U.S. Treasury bond, and it has broken 3%. I didn't notice this. This week, I'm not sure when this happened, but it's at 3.05%. So we are back above 3%. So I guess there's a lot we could read into that. A, maybe the bonds market snuffs out inflation. Or B, maybe the bond market is less worried about a recession. Or C, maybe external foreign buyers are on strike. Like I don't think China is buying much these days. And with the Fed tightening, can they buy bonds or however that worked? Like, I mean, that was quantitative easing, wasn't it? I mean, I'm not an expert in the plumbing, obviously. But anyway, I would say at least from a minimum, from a psychological level, we're back above 3% for the first time in a couple of months. Okay. So I guess it'll be interesting to see where this rally goes. Very interesting. Turning to metal prices, we'd like to thank our friends at mining.com slash markets for providing us with these prices each and every week. And on August 23rd, gold is trading at $1,736.64 per ounce. That is $40 lower than last week. Silver is trading at $18.98 per ounce. That is $1.17 lower than last week, so quite a fall in silver. Platinum is trading at $875.46 per ounce, and that is $54 lower than last week. And palladium is trading at $2,017.28 per ounce. That is $109 lower than last week. 
Turning to our industrial metals, copper is down a penny at $3.65 per pound. Aluminum is down $0.04 cents at $1.08 per pound. Lead is down $0.05 cents at $0.94 cents per pound. Nickel is at $9.79. That is $0.74 cents lower than last week. Back below $10 on nickel. Tin is at $11.32 per pound, only $0.02 cents lower than last week. Cobalt is $0.09 cents lower at $22.12 per pound. And zinc is $0.07 cents lower at $1.60 per pound. Well, you know what this reminds me of is a few months ago when markets were going down and the 10-year bond was high. Let's just take a quick look at oil prices here to see if we can kind of figure out what's going on. Oil is creeping back up. I mean, we have Brent crude at $97.35 per barrel. I mean, West Texas is at $91.31. So again, a pretty big spread between Brent International crude and West Texas, $6 spread there. And then a little headline on CNBC here, oil climbs as tight supply moves back into focus. Like, did we just get a a respite the last two or three months and kind of like a big... I mean, the bears are going to come out and say, see, we told you it was a bear market rally. Maybe retail is wrong after all. But yeah, it kind of feels like we're going back to where we were two or three months ago. And I guess the big question is, will commodities also go back to where they were two or three months ago, raging away? Because right now they're looking lower. They're all kind of, you know, Look like feel like look like they've been punched in the stomach, basically, uh, drifting lower. So a mixed picture over here. We are sussing things out, and those are your metal prices. And coming up, really, someone who needs no introduction at the Northern Miner podcast, and that is Alicia Hyatt, editor in chief of the Northern Miner. And she gives us her update on what's going on in the industry, what she saw at the Canadian Mining Hall of Fame, which is super interesting and kind of inspiring. And also some, you know, new Northern Miner products like the TNM Drill Down, which has been very popular and some upcoming events. So a very interesting, fun episode with the editor in chief of the Northern Miner, Alicia Hyatt. I hope you enjoy it and I will see you on the other side. Today, I'm very pleased to welcome Alicia Hyatt, Editor-in-Chief of the Northern Miner. She started in March, and I've known Alicia, gosh, since 2012, when I began at the Northern Miner, and I sat beside Alicia. We had the cubicle next to each other, so we've known each other for a while. Alicia, it's great to have you on the podcast. Welcome. Thank you so much, Adrian. It's nice to see you and, and talk to you today. So give us the update. How are things at the Northern Miner? What are you guys working on? What's new? Well, we're working on a number of things as we always are. You know, the the one thing we're not short of in the mining industry is news. What we're working on right now is a, a whack of site visits to exploration projects in the next few months that are coming up. But let me let me just plug a new weekly feature that we have in the paper and on the website called TNM Drill Down that we recently launched. It's a table of the top 10 gold drill results of the week. It's something we've been working on for a while with another division in our group called Mining Intelligence. 
which has all the data. And uh, it was very exciting to work on a new product for the, the miner that provides really interesting, timely data for our readers. And it's been quite popular so far. And that's every Monday it comes out. Interesting. And I've seen that. And so I believe it's gold focused, right? So I guess what you guys do is you show the best results of the week that have been published. Is that how it works? Yeah, Mining Intelligence has a, a really great uh, database. So they get data from not just TSX and TSXV and uh, US listed, it's also Australian and uh, AIM listed in London. So for us, uh, because we've concentrated so much on Canadian listed companies, it gives us a, a wider view of what's happening in the gold space in exploration. Well, it sounds like pretty valuable data. And I don't know if you can answer this question, but let's say I'm someone that's interested in drill results, but I want to know about copper. Can I get that sort of information from mining intelligence? Yeah, absolutely. And we're actually, we're doing a, a special section of the paper in our next issue, actually, that we'll be highlighting gold, copper, and nickel top 10 drill results year to date. So yes, absolutely. That's super cool. Again, I'm kind of big on data here in uh, like I love stories and, you know, I did a master's in English and I love English literature, but there's a lot of story in financial markets and especially in the gold market, there's a lot of story. So it's nice to actually get some numbers to give you some some reality, I guess, in all this drama that's going on. <laughs> Yeah, and you know, the drill results, are the, the most high grade, the way that we report them is grade times width. So it's counting both factors. It's really exciting to see, you know, what the best results are, where they're coming from, who's who's coming up with them, who's who's doing that work. Real news is what I call <laughs> that. That's real news. Uh, you know, like how do you, you can't really, I guess you can hype the numbers, but the numbers are the numbers. Okay, so fascinating. So we have the TNM drill down, and you said you're doing a lot of site visits. Can you give us any more information on that, or is that sort of something to keep secret until they are done? Well, it's not something to keep secret. I mean, one, one thing I'll tell you about them is that they are all in the States. So this is interesting. Uh, a lot in Idaho and uh, also in Nevada. So we had, uh, before the pandemic, the Northern Miner was very known for site visits. And obviously that all stopped with the pandemic. So it's, it's really nice to be able to, to start getting those site visits again, those invitations to see projects uh, in person. Yeah, absolutely. And it's great for the reporters too. I mean, they get to go around the world, mm -hmm. uh, get flown around and to actually, you know, see a lot of these places that they're writing about firsthand. And again, it's back to that real news. I mean, when people are seen with their own eyes, that can only help a newspaper rather than, you know, looking at the press release and determining what is going on from that. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, our, our writers interview a lot of people. And so, you know, they get the scoop, but it is totally different. They do have to get that that real world experience and see it in person and be able to ask those questions over that longer period. So zooming out, I mean, you go, I imagine, to a lot of events. You you have this kind of interesting perch, as I like to say, 
a view perspective on the industry what is your sense i mean this is a pretty cyclical industry i mean since we've been involved we had a massive bear market from 2012 and then in 2016 it seemed to have bottomed and then we kind of went up and then we went back down where are we now i mean it seems like things are going good but we've just had this drop off uh what's your sense of things we're kind of in a weird place because there is this demand coming for metals that may be put off by a recession, but it's still going to be coming. And, you know, if these companies can't get the financing or people aren't, the market isn't interested in them, uh, that's just going to make the crunch for metals worse later on. So the next boom for for metals is coming, whether it's now or later. <laughs> and I mean, you see lithium price and, you know, like the, there are certain brighter spots in, in the metal markets, for sure. Absolutely. And there, there's almost a, as you say, like, it's almost like there's an inevitability to, you know, metals. Like, it sounds like if you follow the copper stories, which I'm sure you do, I mean, people out there, if they follow the copper stories, it sounds pretty dire. Like, it, I just see, you know, on our website, the last one I remember of copper shortage was, it was an S&P Global saying this is going to be a national security issue because there's not enough copper. I mean, this is becoming big news. Like this isn't just our little mining industry, not so little actually mining industry, but you know what I'm saying? It's not us on the fringe here. This is kind of becoming front page news. And if not now, we're getting the sense that, you know, lithium has sort of become more of a story, so to speak, in general mainstream news. And uh, yeah, stuff like copper just seems to reinforce exactly what you're saying. This isn't a matter of if, it's kind of more of a matter of when. Yeah, I would agree with that. I mean, uh, the Northern Miner does a speaker series with mining legends in the industry. Pierre Lassonde was, was one of the uh, featured speakers this year. And uh, he's known for gold, obviously, but he was talking about the energy transition and, and actually, you know, saying that copper is what you should be invested in right now, not not even lithium so much. You know, I totally agree with him. And of course, not financial advice, but just me as, uh, you know, my personal opinion as I kind of look at things, especially with copper taking a dive, like it seems to me like, I mean, if you want an inflation hedge, gold seems way more risky, even though I like gold, you know, than copper. Copper's just like, you read any report, it's like, we're running out of copper. And the problem isn't that there's not enough copper in the ground. It's more that the mining companies, they're not investing mm -hmm. in new copper mines. And because of, you know, and it brings us to the regulation issue, yes. mm -hmm. maybe even the economics. And I mean, we see it in the oil industry where everybody is saying we need more energy. And right now the oil companies are buying back stock, you know, so they're not building new things. The shareholders are saying, give us the money. So tell us about the kind of the opening new mind side of things. Do you, do you have any special insight or are you seeing anything in particular with, I don't know, building new mines, regulation, all that sort of stuff? Well, I would say it's just as difficult and more difficult than ever. And that is part of that, that crunch. We had um, Biden's Inflation Reduction Act in the States recently passed. And, you know, the Democrats on one hand, you know, they recognize that they need more metals to fight climate change and for the energy transition. 
but I don't think they want those metals to come from the U.S. They don't want new mines there. And there's been a lot of permitting delays uh, and and worse in, in the in the states for copper projects. So yeah, it, it, hmm. it, it's not too encouraging. I mean, it's great for Canada, but potentially in uh, other countries, although Chile also is having some major political issues, uh, the, the miners there in terms of permitting, and that's because of the new government there. Yeah, and Chile, as we both know, is like an incredibly important country Exactly. With uh, in regards to, to copper. And I'm, I'm not sure, was Peru also? I don't know if you know that. I'm just sort of asking off the cuff yeah. here, but... Chile is number yeah. one for copper, and I believe Peru is number two. Yeah, in Latin America, like it seems to be, uh, or South America, however you want to term it, it seems to be, let's just put it this way, from an uh, investor's perspective, it doesn't seem quite as the steady, sturdy, reliable source, let's call it that, that it maybe once was, as you were pointing out, due to governmental change. And I mean, and... You know what? It's like the U.S. can't say, oh, you know, that's something that happens in South America, but not here, because we see with Trump, like, I mean, people will sign an agreement before him, then he'll tear it up. So, I mean, the U.S. or North American governments, it's not like we're any better. I mean, in terms of this kind of reliability, maybe a little bit. I mean, you know, not to get too far into politics, but all to say it's like South America might not be the reliable source of copper uh, that it once was, just as we are running into a potential massive deficit here. Yeah, I would agree. <laughs> so now I'll get back to questions. So now you guys just had the Canadian Mining Hall of Fame. I think that was last week. Is that correct? Can you tell us a little bit about that and what happened there? Yeah, the Canadian Mining Hall of Fame. It's always an exciting night. It's mining's version of the Oscars. And the most recent one was last week. It was last Thursday. So that was uh, August 18th. And I would say that it was actually a historic night. This year's slate of inductees was the most diverse in the history of the Canadian Mining Hall of Fame, dating back to its origins in uh, 1989. And, uh, you know, three of the five uh, inductees would be considered diverse. So we had the first Black inductee, Peter Risby a very successful prospector who mentored countless other prospectors and geologists. Um, he passed away in 2011. He was the only posthumous uh, inductee of the night. Maureen Jensen is a geologist who spent 20 years in the industry before going over to the regulator side and became the first female chair of the Ontario Securities Commission. And Robert Quartermain, a geologist who built up Silver Standard, which is now SSR mining, and most recently, Predium Resources. He's the first openly gay inductee in the Hall of Fame. And just before we continue talking about that, that diversity aspect, I just want to make sure that I mention the other two inductees as well, because they have incredible accomplishments as well. So Philip John Mackey, who was actually born in Australia, but immigrated to Canada as a young man, is a metallurgist who invented two copper smelting processes that were widely adopted around the world. And Dale Corman is a geologist who has made many big discoveries, including the San Nicolas deposit in Mexico and the Penasquito mine, which became the largest gold mine in Mexico. And he's also been integral in advancing Western Copper and Gold's casino project in the Yukon. So all five inductees have really had a big impact on the industry in different ways. Well, it's a little shocking to hear that 
it's only now the first black inductee into the Canadian Mining Hall of Fame. Did I hear that right? Yeah, you heard that right. That's why it was a historic night. We had wow. three of the five inductees who are considered diverse. You know, the, the Canadian Mining Hall of Fame has made an effort to include more diverse people and, you know, obviously still focusing on very accomplished people. It's not about diversity for diversity's sake. It's, it's about recognizing the contributions of all people. But they still have to, you know, qualify and, and they, they do have some, some pretty rigorous standards. So all of the inductees are very deserving. Oh, I'm sure. And it's like, again, like uh, when you think of all the Canadian mining companies all around the world, and, you know, I'm sure there have been a lot of black participants in that. Uh, so that's, you know, to your point, this is not diversity for diversity's sake. This is more long overdue. I mean, I don't want to jump to too many conclusions here. It seems overdue. Let's put there it that way. Yeah, well, there, there have been a lot more um, Indigenous in, inductees because this is a Canadian Mining Hall of Fame. So there are, you know, there's um, a lot more Indigenous people that are um, involved with mining just because of where mines are and on traditional territories often. Um, so there's just more contact there. And there's also, you know, a lot more Indigenous people who work in mining than, than there would be Black people in Canada. Yeah, so I think that's a very important, fair point that you say. It's not like it's all white, Adrian. Uh, yeah. <laughs> it's like they have had diverse inductees before. So, yeah, so all all to the point of let's not jump to conclusions here. And how was the night? I imagine there were some good speeches. Was the mood good? Like, t tell us a little bit about the night. Yeah, so last year, the first ceremony during COVID uh, was only, uh, was restricted to about 125 people. And that was at the Aga Khan Museum outside in Toronto. This year, it was an indoor event at the Palais Royale, downtown Toronto. Um, and we had over 400 people. So not back to the numbers that we had pre-pandemic, which was well over a thousand people. But still a really nice celebration. And you could tell that the crowd was very excited to be there in person and to celebrate these luminaries of the industry. The MCs, Pierre Gratton of Mining Association of Canada, and our own Anthony Vaccaro, our president of the Northern Miner Group, they had some trouble <laughs> getting the crowd to quiet down a couple of times because people were just excited to, you know, see faces they haven't seen in a while and uh, and catch up. So, yeah, it was it was a lot of fun. It was a great night. Yeah, I mean, this is probably for a lot of people. There's people they probably hadn't seen in years there, a lot of people who were at that event. Because yeah. like you say, last, last year at Aga Khan, I mean, there's like maybe 100 or something. Yeah, and I, I would say, you know, we, we've had a return of events this year starting in January with the Roundup in Vancouver and then with PDAC in June and you know, obviously some other conferences in the middle. And so we, we have had that return, but yeah, it, it's starting to feel more normal. <laughs> and I think everybody really welcomes that because mining is the sort of industry where it's about connecting with people right in the end. And I just wanted to mention, you know, a couple of things that some of the inductees said in their speeches. So obviously diversity in the industry was a theme throughout the night. And Bob Quartermain in his acceptance speech pointed out that in 1985, he got a big break from tech 
who put him in charge of Silver Standard, which he built up from a very small company of like, you know, under 2 million market cap to the SSR mining is now $4 billion or something like that market cap. But he pointed out at that time when tech put him in charge, you could actually be fired in Canada for being gay. And, you know, he, wow. he, yeah. And he said he was very fortunate that tech supported him. And in fact, Don Lindsay and Norm Keeble of tech were in the audience showing their support to him. And, you know, at the end of his speech, he mentioned that the mining industry needs to create a much larger tent to, you know, going with the exploration theme to create the inclusive environment. It needs to compete for talent. And Maureen Jensen, former Ontario Securities Commission chair, she said very similar things. She noted that the industry has lost people who don't fit into the prevailing mining culture. And it's not something that the industry can afford, given the current war for talent. And so I think that they both recognized that they had opportunities and support from their network and their mentors, and they were able to break through barriers that they faced, but not everyone who doesn't fit into the prevailing mining culture is able to do that. And then just to talk a little bit about Peter Risby, he just has an incredible story. Somebody needs to make a movie of his life if they haven't already. He was mixed race. He was born in Kansas. His mother was white, his father was black, and his family was being harassed by the KKK. So every time the KKK came around when he was a small child, a baby, his parents would put their son in a chicken coop to hide him. So eventually they fled to Canada and they settled in a Cree community in northern Alberta. And I won't go through his entire story, but I will say, you know, he was taken to residential school at seven years old. He escaped by himself at seven years old and made his own way back home. So obviously uh, an incredible person, <laughs> uh, very determined from a young age. <laughs> I'll just continue talking a little bit about how he got into mining. His uh, interest in rocks and prospecting came about just by happenstance. He was working as a machine operator at a mine in BC and his roommate was a geology student. And he learned from him and became fascinated with the subject. And he became a, a successful prospector, optioning over 80 projects to majors over his career. He also made a tungsten discovery in the Northwest Territories in the 1960s that started a staking rush up there. And he operated a plaster mine in the Yukon in the early 80s. And he was definitely known as a, an advocate for diversity and for giving Indigenous people and women, for example, a chance to train with him and work with him in the field. And you know, he was known for transmitting his passion and enthusiasm on to those he mentored. Well, you know, in all the culture wars and everything, sometimes what gets lost are these stories because these stories just speak so much more than any sort of political talking point do. I mean, they're so powerful. That sounds like a, that must've been a very powerful moment at the, uh, at the Canadian Mining Hall of Fame. Yeah, and his daughter, Peter Risby's daughter, Tara, was there to accept the word on his behalf. And, you know, she she and actually everybody else who talked about him and they, they do these videos before um, each acceptance speech, just, you know, going over the person's life and accomplishments. Like everybody spoke so highly of him, um, he spoke about his sense of humor and his resilience and his passion and yeah, he, he had actually been recognized. He was uh, inducted into the Yukon Prospectors Hall of Fame. So 
he is has been recognized before. Actually, even um, a former writer of the Northern Miner, Leslie Stokes, she was one of the people who had worked with him and learned from him. Mm -hmm. And she was, uh, you know, she's talked about him in the video. And she said that she learned from him to look for things in the rocks that nobody else was looking for. It's a small world. So Leslie, <laughs> former Northern Miner alumni, actually worked with him what a crazy story though that's amazing and you know like i was just thinking to myself as you're saying this like this is what the canadian mining hall of fame is all about and so i think that's so great uh it's just a really again like society twitter wants to just abstract these talking points but what gets lost in that are stories like this so you see the value in the canadian mining hall of fame if they're oh, helping highlight sure. these kind of stories it is really something to be there um, in person. And, uh, you know, it means so much to, to each of the inductees to be honored in this way. And they all are very thankful to like so many people in the industry. They acknowledge they couldn't have done, you know, made these great accomplishments without support from other people. Uh, Bob Quartermain, you know, said <laughs> literally wanted to thank like thousands of people that he's worked with through his career. It does sound like the Oscars. <laughs> Everybody gets their list out. That's hilarious. Okay, so wrapping up, Alicia, what do we have to look forward to here? We have a couple of events coming up. Uh, what's on the menu for us as we get nearer to September into the big fall, you know, fall blitz of, you know, the media new year? Uh, what do we have to look forward to? Well, the Northern Miner has uh, several events coming up. We've got speaker series um, in Vancouver. Um, which actually does feature Bob Quartermain um, and Andre St. Germain. That's in, I think, mid-September. And then we also have our next Global Mining Symposium uh, coming up, which is in late September. And that's virtual again. The speaker series is in person. And then near the end of the year, November, we have our uh, Mining Symposium in London, England. So all very exciting, <laughs> packed calendar, um, and we'll have lots of content from each of these events in the newspaper and on video. I was going to say packed calendar. And so if people want to find out more, I believe you go to events.northernminer.com. And yeah, it sounds like lots to look forward to. Well, don't be a stranger to the program, Alicia. Thank you for joining us. Alicia Hyatt, Editor-in-Chief of the Northern Miner newspaper and website and brand, I guess. Editor-in-Chief, thank you for joining us on the Northern Miner podcast. Thank you so much, Adrian. My pleasure. Another fascinating interview with our people here. Another All in the Family episode with Northern Miner Editor-in-Chief Alicia Hyatt. Thank you for coming on, Alicia. And next week, we have a very special guest. It'll be another kind of geopolitical metals and energy show. So, so there's your preview. It might be a long one, too. So that's all the clues I'm going to give. Hopefully everything works out with our scheduling. If you want to help out the podcast, leave us a review in the Apple Podcast directory. Share it with your friends. And until next week, take care.